Hey, this is producer and editor Dele Johnson welcoming you to another bonus episode of How Art is Born Season 2. Reflecting on this season of the podcast, we had so many wonderful, passionate, and talented guests on our show that we wanted to relive some of these moments. In this episode of How Art is Born, we're revisiting some highlights from the first five episodes of Season 2 with guests AJ Haynes, Blake Jackson, Sebastian Jones, Diego Gerard Morrison, and Lucia Inahosa, and Wes Watkins. We hope you love listening back to these moments as much as we did. To start us off, we're going back to our Season 2 premiere with singer, songwriter, and performer AJ Haynes, frontwoman of the band Serotones and reproductive justice advocate. Alan and AJ discuss AJ's musical career, family, and her desire for a more mutually nourishing relationship between audience and artist. Welcome to How Art is Born, a podcast from the Museum of Contemporary Art Denver about the origins of artists and their creative and artistic practices. I'm your host, R. Alan Brooks, artist, writer, and professor. Today I'm joined by the front woman of the Dirty South-based funk soul rock group, The Serotones, and reproductive justice advocate, AJ Haynes. Say hi. Hi. That's how we make sure people know the difference between our voices. Hey. (laughs) Okay, to start off, AJ, could you tell us a little bit about who you are? Hmm. Big question, right? Who am I? Right. Um, Where do I begin? (laughs) So I was, I've been thinking a lot about lineage and ancestry. Um, So where am I, you know, where am I placing myself in space and time right now? And I can say that, you know, I'm the daughter of Jane, uh, granddaughter of Octavia, great granddaughter of Lottie, um, you know, and just out here living my life as a free black queer southerner uh, and it feels really great. I have the privilege of um, making a life out of art and art out of life through <laughs> through uh, my most recent project with Serotones, uh, Love and Algorithms. Yeah. So I'm feeling really, right, I'm feeling, um, I'm feeling myself, <laughs> you know? I'm feeling it, I'm feeling where I am. Um, daughter of an immigrant, you know, just sitting, sitting at a lot of really terrifying and beautiful intersections. So I guess that would be yeah. the, the quick, quick roundabout way of, of saying, um, you know, I am who I am. <laughs> you know, I love that. I think that's a great place to start, right? Well, so it was interesting because the question I was getting to was like, um, for me, a lot of times when people are sort of given the motivation to think about being creative or even uh, being revolutionary mm-hmm. or an activist, a lot of it is around pushing through your own fear. Mm-hmm. But for me, I had to push through the fear of the community around me mm. in order to be my fullest self. And I wonder, uh, you know, I did see that you, you were born in Japan, is mm-hmm. that right? Okay. So uh, I wonder for you being born somewhere else, right. having um, another heritage to the drawn and culture, and growing up in the South, mm-hmm. being sort of identified as black, mm-hmm. um, does that inform just sort of how you, how you find your biggest and most expansive self? 
Absolutely. Like, and it's always a process of discovery, too. You know, I recently discovered um, in indigenous Filipina culture, there was the uh, leader of the community called the Babaylan. Hmm. Um, and the Babaylan were typically, like, femme center, you know, but definitely, I mean, this is like, gender is a colon, like, colonialization thing, whatever. But anyway, and uh, the, uh. the Babylon like were they were medicine people. They were like doulas of for all pregnancy outcomes. They were, you know, the witch bitches. They were like who the um, you know kings or whatever the the term would be within the tribe. Who the lead folk would ask for consult. So I'm like, I'm always in this process of discovering something new. Hmm. You know, and it's the process of discovery that informs my decisions, um, you know, because it's not static. Like yeah. all of these different identities are like they're both and they're here and they're, you know, centuries ago. And um, just having that, I think, you know, specifically thinking about coming to the U.S. whenever I was like, like four or something. Um, so my mother's from the Philippines, my father's from Louisiana, they met in Yakuska, Japan, had me, my brother and sister, and then we moved from Yakuska to Columbia, Louisiana, and moved in with my grandma, um, and that was, it was interesting to, like, see myself as other, you know, because my first experience of the world and seeing people was like, oh, people are just people, you know, like, they have different skin tones and that has no value, right? It's just like, oh, this is pretty or like, you know, like this is, a, it's an observation. There's no meaning attached to it. There's no value attached to it. And then, you know, I remember the first time this little boy said, what about colored people? And I was like, what are you talking about? Purple huh. or green? Like, right. if that gives you, first of all, a sense of like, I grew up in the country. Seriously. Uh, <laughs> I was like, when, when were they using the term colored? They were using right. the term colored. <laughs> right. Or you know, the N-word. Right. You know, and like, for me, black identity was how we named ourselves, right? It wasn't like other people calling us black. It was like, I'm black and I'm proud. Right. I'm black and I'm beautiful because we are calling ourselves this because these white supremacists out here got other choice words and we're just not using them. Um, and, you know, growing up, one of my best friends, I was not allowed to go to her birthday sleepover parties because her dad was a Klansman. You know, like, that wasn't that long ago. Right. I'm only 34, you know. Yeah. Okay, so there's so much to um, hearing, like, how you, how you see yourself in the world, how you see yourself within that kind of thing. Uh, I want to go back a little, and uh, you talked about young memories of singing for your grandmother mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Um, was there a certain point for you where you knew singing was going to be the thing that you did, or did, was that kind of always with you? It's always, and, like, is that the thing I'm doing still? You know, <laughs> I'm like, is that what I'm actually doing? Um, I, I just, I'm, I'm really, uh, really lucky and really guided, you know, and um, I was. I mean, I'm a sing period, you know, like right. I was going to sing whether I'm getting paid to or not. My grandmother told me, taught me, 
get paid you know (laughs) like there's money here and what you're doing is a service like for me singing is like an act of service you know it's very much so you know here's my contribution to to helping people process to helping helping period you know um and so it's it's service for myself it's service like for my ancestors it's service for people that are here and uh you know in the flesh I don't know. I just, I've always done it yeah. and was determined to, to try out having a, a rock and roll band, you know. How'd you pick rock and roll? Reclamation. Yeah. I was like, that's my shit. Right. Like, we made, we made that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, it's a lot of adolescence too. So rock and roll for me feels very much so like a part of like the adolescence of, of this country, uh-huh. you know, and um, yeah, I, I, and it was also, that's, those are the guys that I was hanging out with, you know, we're all putting on DIY punk shows, like, um, you know, listening to Led Zeppelin, and I was like, I want a rock and roll band, damn it, <laughs> you know, and from there, it's like, I just, you know, I don't really, I was very keen on, like, unpacking, or at least, like, continuing to draw the line f- uh, from rock and roll in, in America to, like, the African diaspora, yeah. And specifically, like, looking at, like, Yoruban culture and, like, the trickster gods and goddesses, yeah. you know, like, like that's where rock and roll actually came from is its spirit. Um, and then after kind of living that discovery, then I'm like, actually, like, we're, we're so, God, it's just black music. Like, how incredible. Like, <laughs> just, you can do whatever you want. And, um, and then shifted from rock and roll to, like, uh, I mean, where we are now, which, you know, I like to name myself as, like, sci-fi punk, sci-fi funk, you know, like, I mean, it's really black music when I think of, I mean, black is in, like, dark matter, black is in, like, the thing that holds and also contains everything and and is, you know, beyond, Um, and, you know, for me, I think actually discovering, like, Alice Coltrane was part of that shift, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> of like, hmm, this is, this is, we, c- we can do this. Right. You know, we can play harp. She, she, uh, this music is devotional, right? Um, and devotion in ways that people may not have heard before, but in, immediately understand. You listen to Alice Coltrane and you're like, I don't need to know what mode this is in. I don't need to know. She did, she was winging it. I mean, classically trained, like, and, impeccable musician you know all around but she was like this is this is spirit music period and so shifting from like wanting to draw the like um like the historical cultural line with rock and roll and then just going straight to spirit and it's like okay what does spirit want and what is what is spirit asking of me right um and it sounds like it's filtered through all of my experiences, you know, and it's, it's honest in that way. And that's, I feel like Alice Coltrane operates. She's just like, I'm going to do what I do. Yeah. Let it be what it is. Right. Right. Absolutely. I want to ask a question about your, your art specifically. Um, I I find that there's a lot of people um, who think that there's a destination in art. Like, you know, Mm -mm. if I just get, if I just get the record deal, if I just get the publishing deal, whatever. Um, and 
obviously for you it's a journey. You seem to be very good about um, being like, here's where I am. Right. You know, and, and enjoying that and then figuring out what your next goals are. Mm -hmm. But um, I guess, how do, you, how do you process goals as an artist? How do you measure mm. what you've accomplished? Or is it important to you at all? Yeah, it is important. I'm trying to, like, I'm trying to work on the practice of gratitude more, honestly. Like, yes, goals are important. Yes, like, there's a business to this, 100%. You know, like keep a good team around you. Right. Like understand the me the me mechanisms, the uh, processes. But like, is if that's the goal, okay, that's your goal. That's not mine. You right. know, like <laughs> no interest in doing something that is not aligned with like my like ethics and my mm. morals and my spirit. I have no interest in that whatsoever, because then it it sullies this gift. Yeah. You know, um, and I say so. Yes, and like. How do I measure goals? You know, like financially, yes. Like I'd like to make more money so that I can, and not only make more money, but how I make the money. Like how it would, you know, this ties into reproductive justice, right? So uh. reproductive justice, you know, is a framework created by a group of 16 black women in like 19, was it 94 or 92? Huh. Um, in response to seeing how the Democratic Party was just like, no, we're not gonna talk about reproductive health, you know, that's not a winnable issue. And they were like, what? <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, Loretta Ross is like, mm, try again. And, you know, created this framework and uh, reproductive justice is the human right to determine when to have a child, if you want a child, and being able to raise that child in a safe and sustainable environment, right? So, and I'm thinking about my child self, like how is my child self safe? My child self is safe whenever I get sleep, you right. know, whenever I'm not in fight or flight all the time, because I've toured like that, like I've lived like that before, right. and I thrived in it. Mm -hmm. But is that sustainable? <laughs> right, <laughs> you know, right. is it sustainable getting drunk on Wild Turkey 101 every night? Mm, no. <laughs> uh, and so now I'm like, I need that juice, I need that, that extra sleep, you know. So for me, you know, I, I want to have more integrative and creative ways of touring that are more engaged in the community just like this, mm -hmm. you know, where I'm, get, I'm, I'm getting fed by the community. We're feeding each other, right? you know, um, and, and just creating new ways of doing this hmm. because it's a whole new, who, who knows what's going to happen in the next year and what, right. what's possible, you know, these paradigms, these, like, infrastructure shifting is broken, whatever, you know, you create something new. You have something has to die for something to be born, you know? Hmm. Well, AJ, I think that's a beautiful place to end. Yay! Thank you so thank much you. for taking it. You have a really dope perspective on the world. And yeah, I just love being able to hear it, so thank you. That was a lovely and inspiring conversation between Alan and AJ Haynes. Next up is the second episode of season two and part of our two episode premiere where Alan sits down with a friend of the show and the museum, Blake Jackson, a Denver-based photographer and film director. Alan and Blake discuss using art as a medium for expressing one's worldview and the impact artwork can have on those who receive it. Today I'm joined by Denver-based, self-taught, multidisciplinary artist focused on photography and film direction, Blake Jackson. Say hello. How's it going? See, I make everybody do that so that they know when they listen, they're like, what voice is different? That's right. That's yeah, right. Who's talking now? <laughs> anyway, uh, start us off, man. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about who you are? 
Man, um, my name's Blake. I love long walks on the beach, <laughs> you know, blowing daffodils, you know, watching them float off in the wind. No, I'm <laughs> no, my name's Blake. Um, I'm from Cheyenne, Wyoming, the thriving metropolis of Cheyenne, Wyoming. Um, and yeah, I moved to Denver in 2007. Uh, just trying to trace some dreams, and that dream led me to selling mattresses for about four years. That's how it goes. That's how it goes. Yeah. Um, and stumbled my way to becoming a, a full-time creative somehow, hmm. some way. For some people, art is an escape. Sometimes it heals you. Sometimes it's about sharing a message with the world. Did it did it function in any of those ways for you? Dwayne? It was a mixture of, bo- of all of that. So okay. it was a mi- it was a being able to go to a different world. Yeah. For, for one, for two, it was just like I wanted, I wanted to be able to express myself. Yeah. And I and it, it it's really hard for non artists to to understand that expression of right. using art as a form of of, of expressing yourself because, um, we're we're able to do that through the language of, of our vocation, of our art, of, right. of our craft, as opposed to just being like, yeah, this is how I feel. This is my worldview. We can show them, yeah. you know? So it was, it was that, and I just wanted to get what I wanted to say out, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Um, and it was just like one of those things where it's like, you know, if you're an artist, like to, to your core, you're, you, it's like compulsive. Hmm. You know, you can't live without doing it. Like you can't survive without creating something, you know? Right, okay. So. Um, you're going through these experiences. You're um, dealing with trauma. You're, you know, working through all these things. Is um, and then you said that one of the things that stood out to you was you wanted to be able to say something through art. Uh, at that age, at that time, what, what what was it that you felt like you wanted to say? I wanted to be able to, um, like my whole life, man. I don't really feel like people have really thoroughly understood me. Huh. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I have very close friends. You know, I you know I got people that I've known my entire life and I you know I think this is true for anybody like you 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 can know somebody up to a point you know because you're not with them for their most intimate moments by themselves you're not in their head not in their head right and so um I've always just been able been wanting to be able to get out this perspective um, of how I see the world my like my world 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 view yeah and I couldn't do that other than through art and what's wild about my journey you know to becoming an artist because I didn't consider myself to be an artist until like 2018 okay 2018 2019 probably and but you were doing I mean I know you were making art like my whole life and and even like at a professional level but for some reason I didn't consider myself to be an artist until um, you know I quit my job to do photography full-time in 2017 right yeah and it still took me a few years, probably, you know, maybe even like to 2020 till I actually felt like I had released the shackles of like what I thought people wanted me to be. Huh. And so I was able to actually live as an artist, like express myself as an artist, yeah. dress the way I want to dress because I can be like, yo, yes, you couldn't pull that off because you're not, you're not me. But huh. since I am me, I can pull this off because it's the way that I feel. This is how I'm going to be able to express myself, yeah. right? The most me. Yeah, this is the most me. This yeah. is like, you know, when you think about, you know, The Matrix, which is a movie that literally changed my entire life, right? Mm. But like in The Matrix, you have their their uh, their subconscious expressions of themselves while they're in The Matrix. Like, mm. this is how I see myself, right? Yeah. And, and so 
up until a few years ago or a couple years ago, I didn't really feel like I was able to fully lean into my uh, uh, my vision of how I, I look at this world, right? Mm. And so, and in addition to that, yeah. the reason I didn't really feel like I was an artist was because it took forever for me not only to find my voice, voice, but to find something that I feel like I could stick with because I'm, you know, I'm an Aquarius through and through. I'm, I'm mercurial. I change my mind pretty quickly. Okay. You know, I can go different direct. I can go one direction and, and, and change on a dime yeah. the next day, you know? Huh. Um, and, and that kind of permeated throughout every part of my life, specifically with how I wanted to pr- express myself creatively. Hmm. You know, I was drawing and I was pretty good at it, but I never dedicated myself to actually doing it for like my whole life. Right. I had this period where I was obsessed with it and then I put it down. Right. You know, there's a period where I was writing a whole lot and then I put it down. Hmm. You know what I mean? And so I think that's why I have this, this such big love for photography. And then, you know, by way of photography, filmmaking is because it's stuck. Yeah. It's stuck. It's stuck. You know huh. what I mean? It was finally something where I'm like, you know, I'm good at this. I can make a living doing this. And I am finally getting the uh, the world or my world, um, or the people in my world to to see what I've been trying to say this whole time. <laughs> you know, and so that has been something that I've been able to hold on to. Yeah. Now, yeah. I'm going to say I'm really interested in um, this sort of quote unquote idea of yeah. an artist. Right. Yeah. Um, because. If you were making photography, like I've known you to make photography for much longer than like much longer than before 2018. Yeah. So um, was it the financial component that made you feel like, you know, like I can support myself? Like what what made you feel like you're finally an artist? It, it was it was a, it was a uh, feeling that um, that my art wasn't compar- compartmentalized. OK, it was it was instead of it being a waffle, it was it was a pancake uh. and it was spreading all the, the syrup was spreading out through all my pieces. Interesting. Of my so I didn't I didn't feel like I had to um, watch what I say. Yeah, um, to that's a, a big thing. That's a big thing. You know, that's might have gotten me in trouble the last couple of years of being very expressive about my worldview. And, you know, it's probably cost me a bag because I'm very much um, I'm very uh, steadfast in my beliefs, and yeah. when it comes to like liberation and anti-imperialism, and right. you know being anti-capitalist and all that, right? So, um, but you know, it allowed me to, you know, 2020 was a really pivotal year for me because it forced me to slow down, it forced me to stop, and it forced me to uh, focus on the world in a way that I hadn't focused on it huh. before, and and really get into this part of myself where, you know, my level of empathy could now be expressed in a way that was tangible. You know, mm. I've always been somebody that has cared for like the underdog and the small person um, and the people that don't have a voice. But now, you know, by way of what was happening in 2020, I was able to find a community that was able to allow me to uh, put that empathy into in, in, into people, right? Mm. And whether it was through activi- activism or through actions or mutual aid or, or digital activism or, or things of that nature or philanthropy or fundraising, it, it really helped solidify what I feel like my, my role in my community can be. Mm. And then since then, it's evolved even more. So, you know, 2020, I think, was, you know, I, I say this a lot to my friends, like, if you were able to come out of 2020 
period, like you're winning for one. No doubt. And for two, if you're able to come out of 2020 and have this um, ability to um, still hold, held on to that part of you that, you know, a lot of people lost because of how crazy 2020 was, that part of you must have stuck around for a reason. So, mm. like, you know, lean into that a little bit. Okay. Um, it just kind of solidified it. You know, I think we as a society went through a whole lot and it strengthened us and then it uh, traumatized us as well. You know, a lot of things that went on during that time. But I think it really solidified, you know, uh, what what we believe to be what's right. Huh. And what, that, what that's done for myself is allowed me to um, – have a little bit more perspective yeah. of, of not only of my world and of what, what's going on in it, but being more, persp- uh, more uh, aware of, of myself and, and how I walk within it. Hmm. And so I've been able to use my art in a way to express myself in a, in a manner that lines up with that, with that, with that dogma a little yeah. bit, um, but not necessarily hitting it nail on the head of like, okay, this photo signifies this, but mm-hmm. more of, okay, you're going to find out who I am by way of my art, and then you're going to get this message hmm. on top of that. You know what I mean? No, because I use no that as a chosen horse yeah. to get people to listen to what I have to say. No, I love that, man. Yeah. I, like As you're talking, I, I feel like we have um, some interesting parallel paths. All right, so uh, we were talking about um, how people react to art, and with you doing photography and film, mm-hmm. um, I would love if you have an example of like when you created something where somebody specifically talked about how it affected them. Uh, man, there's a, there's a few instances, um, but I, I would say it was, <laughs> I, have a couple, I have a couple of instances specifically. Um, I actually have a few, but uh, the, 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 the one I want to uh, speak about specifically was, um, you know, while the uprising was happening in 2020, yeah. um, I was going to a lot of protests. Um, at first, I was going there to document. You know, okay. I wanted to be able to be a fly on the wall, take it in, take photos, and just really approach it from a photojournalistic uh, standpoint of, you know, this is an important time, right. you know. I didn't see a, I didn't see any black photographers out there or brown photographers out there, and so huh. this is our plight, you know, in, in a class plight as well. But right. I, I wasn't seeing it, we were being displayed uh, in a manner that felt like trauma porn through other people's eyes. Through, through other people's no eyes. Doubt. So um, I, that's what prompted me to go out there, um, and and subsequently things changed once I got tear gassed the first time, yeah. and I was like, wait a second. I, it clicked, something clicked and I was uh, like, hold on, you know, I don't want to be someone that's just taking photos of this document. I, I want to be someone that is a part of this of this movement um, and 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 really try to fulfill a role within that community. Yeah. Um, but before that, you know, I went to a protest that was over uh, in the Montbello area and um, and, you know, everyone had their fists up and things like that. So I took a photo um of of this gentleman's fist like raising the air um and entitled it uh break our chains okay and and that photo um was probably the first time i could really see that um 
I have a responsibility like with my lens. Uh-huh. Like I have a responsibility of what I take. I have a responsibility of, of my perspective and yeah. I have a responsibility um, of, to make sure that I do it in a light that is going to be authentic because, um, you know, I'm not just some random dude, right. you know, I'm not just some random guy that you're going to find like people who are paying attention. And that's when I, things kind of, uh, changed a little bit for me of being like, um, you know, I need, I thought I was living within my purpose of being a creative and I knew I had to go deeper, mm-hmm. a little bit deeper because, you know, a lot of people reacted to that, that image in a way that felt like, um, it gave them a sense of, of like revolutionary spirit. Huh. Like they it gave them like a battery in their back. Yeah. So I was like, okay, well, all right, well, now that I know that people can identify with my work in that way, uh-huh. I have to be very intentional with how I do it, yeah. regardless of the subject matter. Like, hmm. regardless if it's, you know, from a, uh, a street photography uh, perspective or from, you know, making a short film, I have to be very, very conscious of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was probably one of the times that I was able to kind of realize that, you know, people are, are receiving my art in the way that I wanted to. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's dope. Yeah. That's really dope. Man. Yeah. Pleasure talking to you, brother. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for being here. It was a really cool conversation. Man, this was Let's great, man. This was a great conversation. I appreciate I, you, bro. Again, I feel like we've known each other for like over a decade. I, and this is the longest we've It's crazy. Ever I know. That's crazy. <laughs> what a candid and insightful conversation between Alan and Blake for episode two of season two of How Art is Born. We'll move on now to some highlights from episode three with guest Sebastian Jones. Sebastian is the founder and president of Stranger Comics and a longtime friend of Alan's. The two graphic novel grandmasters discuss what it takes to run a successful, independent comic book company. Today I'm joined by Los Angeles-based publisher, writer, teacher, founder, and president of Stranger Comics, Sebastian Jones. Say hello. Hello, hello, everybody. Hello, Denver. (laughs) so hey man i want to start this out so like uh in 2017 i decided that i was going to leave my insurance job and Mm. um and go full-time in comics and i had no foundation anything and i i had rapped for years so i was thinking okay with the charisma and hustle that it takes to be an mc looking at all these other comics creators like i'm definitely gonna be able to stand out you know and Mm. i and i came at it really hard and then i met this motherfucker with (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> 10 times the charisma and 10 times the hustle of anything, you know, it, it actually was very inspiring to meet you, man. Um, just to mm. see how you handle all your stuff. But also it was like, wow, man. All right. Cause uh, the few that I, the few things that I had done before I saw you do your thing, I was already standing out. And then to see it like happen on another level, I was like, yo, these are possibilities out here, man. <laughs> uh, yeah, man. So do you, uh, I guess, want to talk a little about like how you sort of form the way that you approach comics as a business you want like the trade seat trade secret hustles <laughs> right. right how to get <laughs> charisma like now really. um behind the curtain the behind the curtain that sounds like it could be really naughty um <laughs> so how do i the, how to approach it as a business well i think i think for me it initially came down to the contents um, the kind of the kind of content that I wanted to create would essentially uh, dictate the audience that would come, rather than mm-hmm. catering to an audience I'm trying to please. 
And I think a lot of times, um, especially now, you know, we talk about this shit as old, old bastards, you know, especially yeah. now it's like, oh, most people are trying to catch a trend. And by the time that you've caught up the trend, it's moved on to something else, you know, like, oh, that's a hashtag. And that was a new hashtag and, and so forth. So, yeah. so for me, I was like, I, I never, this is many, many years ago. I started Stranger Comics with, with, with the guys back around 2008, 2009. And then even with this, even if I said it now, I think just philosophically, you take the same kind of um, approach mm-hmm. on how to build a brand that if it does not succeed, at least you can say, you, you know, it nourished your soul along the way. It nourished your, uh, you know, you, you held firm with your own integrity and kind of put out the material that you wanted. So isn't, there isn't such a thing as a failure. You yeah. might not have a movie. You might not be a bestseller, but if you can make a decent living or you can pay some bills um and make some folks happy then with within the the almost uncompromising vision that you have well then cool you've done something right Mm -hmm. Uh, you've, you've kind of figured it out so for me it was like okay um how can i tell stories that essentially um you know celebrate the ceremony of black culture yet um within the stories create a a deeply kind of human global experience mm-hmm. so you've got these you, you know so that's just essentially some foundation um yeah. relatable themes relatable stories but then the backdrop is fantasy and it's, it's this world i've created and you know um so it, honestly, bro, it was just it was it was born out of me wanting to reflect my own vulnerabilities, hmm. uh, my insecurities, my guilt, and my wrath, and hmm. uh, and and try and and then if a reader could read this shit, they could then maybe put themselves in and be really honest and naked with it maybe the reader can then put themselves in those shoes and yeah. then connect with the story and then maybe me as a writer, but I, I don't think I even thought that far ahead, to be honest. It is a, a Stephen King quote that I'll... I'll uh, mm-hmm. He basically says, uh, amateurs wait for inspiration, the rest of us just get up and work, you know? Right. And, I, and I think that's a real thing. Like Inspiration, I think, is great for the idea, but the actual execution of the idea that's going to be work and you have to treat it like work and set aside a time to do it and just do that right. shit. Uh, in regards to the stuff around um, your art pulling you away from your family, we also talked about sort of uh, intangible goals. Is is there like a sort of plateau that you see that you'll reach that will allow you to, to spend more of that time? Or is this sort of like your lot in life as a creative person? Uh, it's a great, it's a great point. Um, you know, getting up there in years is yeah. I do want to spend time, more time with my mm-hmm. family. So I think there's a, a financial stability yeah. um, that needs to happen. Um, excuse me. Um, and in order for that to happen, you need to put yeah. in the work. Um, so I think they'll hit a point, you know, God willing, where I'll be able to spend more time enjoying my time um with the creations and with family and less time 
worrying about, you know, is it uh, is it X for the cost of the printing of the comic versus right. Y? Oh shit, we better go with X, you know, and and urgency and those types of things. But um, you know, being in the game and having the attrition to get through mm-hmm. that, you know, we're 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 inching there. You know, we're we're, we're getting to those yeah. places. Thank thank goodness. But you know, again, I think in this whole this whole day and age of people looking for the out or the quick mm-hmm. fix or the, you know, the, um, the immediacy of new business, which is wonderful and entrepreneurship, but, but without the understanding of the attrition, right. you know, like in the pandemic, everyone started businesses, which is understandable and commendable. But at times I think there's not the realization of cost versus right. income versus the reality of social media paying for your, um, for your mm-hmm. business. All right. So we were talking about, um, the people being distracted by their devices and apps and all that stuff. Sure. And it seems like people largely come to art in order to have some kind of emotional experience, like, uh, TV right. shows, movies, yeah. books, whatever it is. Um, and you also talked about sharing your vulnerability in your art. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's a really important thing for me as an artist to, to make an emotional connection with whoever is reading what I'm writing. So I guess I want to hear a little more about what that means to you to make that emotional connection with the reader and, uh, and to share your vulnerability, like what it is that you're trying to get across. Um, I, I guess it's just, um, I feel like it's a cathartic release. Mm. I feel it's, um, in a lot of respects, it's, um, I'm, I'm lucky. I'm blessed to be able to do it versus I think sometimes people are, other writers I chat to, um, they hide their vulnerabilities more within certain characters. And some like, here is a, a representation or a fictitious representation of what I wish I could uh, be, yeah. or, you know, and, and so on, which I, you know, great writers, whatever, whatever works for you. Right. Um, for me, I think it's just, um, no, I'm going to rip that fucking scab off and I'm going to show you, here's me bleeding, right. Here's my, here's my, my, my soul bleeding. And, um, and maybe you can relate as a reader, like, yo, my soul, I've bled for the same reasons. I've, you know, had a loss. I've had relationship blues. I've had um, regret. I think a lot, if I would say there's a common theme um, to maybe just openly talk about it is how do you heal? And so therefore, how do the characters heal? And if you've had some shit happen to you, if you can then go, oh, I can relate to this person. Oh, look, there is a light for them. There is an opportunity for for redemption and salvation and being better and, you know, and being a cool, cool badass and whatever on the way, right. fine. Right. The, the John Wicky of it all, or the, who, whoever you're, you're, you know, if you're into that dude, you know, or, or whatever, whatever right. you're into, right. It was like, you know, the old samurai mm-hmm. movies, the seven samurai, Yojimbo, and then the spaghetti Westerns and all these wonderful things that allow us. You're like, Oh shit, there is that. I can, I can find mm-hmm. that too. So I think in that, in that that's healing for me and i think and i hope it's healing for a reader it's like 
what would you, how do we fuck with second yeah. chances? We were given a second chance because we already was regret. Uh-huh. And I have a, um, a cheesy line that I wrote in one of the Untamed. It was like, I think I wrote something like, regret lingers longer than uh-huh. sin. So if you do the sin, does your regret out, outlast the actual right. sin? How long do you continue to beat yourself up? And, and, huh. and so on. That's interesting, so, man. Yeah, I think, you know, for me, I'm always exploring some version of um, how do I remain open-hearted while still having the strength to do what I need to do in the world? But man, I want to say uh, I appreciate you being on. Uh, seeing you do all your stuff, like the, the level of dedication you have and um, integrity and the fact that we can have like realized conversations, you know, like all of that to me is constantly inspiring. I'm always happy to see whatever success, like any success that comes your way, I'm like, that dude deserves it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so it's really really great to be able to uh, sit and talk to you during this time. Um, Thank you, I, I appreciate it. Our next guests of season two were the Mexico City-based wordsmithing couple of Diego Gerard Morrison and Lucia Inojosa. Alan chats with this dynamic duo about how they each found their passion for experimentation with language. Welcome to How Art is Born, a podcast from the Museum of Contemporary Art Denver about the origins of artists and their creative and artistic practices. I'm your host, R. Alan Brooks, artist, writer, and professor. Today, I'm joined by Mexico City-based writer Diego Gerard Morrison and artist Lucia Inojosa. Say hello. 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 <laughs> All right. So uh, just to start us off, uh, I, you know, I mentioned that uh, a little bit of what you do, but can you say a little bit about who you are and, and, and what kind of art you do? Um, well, I am uh, Lucia, and I am an artist and experimental poet from Mexico City. I work uh, with interdisciplinary practices, very much mixed and and fluid. Um, I work with with sound, with drawing, with um, concrete poetry, um, installation, many things. And I also love to write and I question every day what writing is and how can writing be expanded you know like a sort of poetry uh sort of like a poetic um exploration that you know expands boundaries um and i also edit the experimental journal disonare which is a bilingual journal journal with diego gerard and we've been doing that for many years Nice. All right, Diego. I'm Diego Gerard Morrison. I'm a writer, editor, and translator based, based in Mexico City. Okay. So you guys both uh, do a lot of work with words. And um, Lucia, you were talking about sort of um, what it means to sort of try to stretch the boundaries of what words can accomplish. That's a really fascinating thing to me. Um, some years ago, I was reading a C.S. Lewis book where he was talking about... Uh, the limitations of language to fully convey an experience, you know, like the difference between writing about skiing versus actually skiing. And I wonder if in your approach of using uh, mixed media, like multidisciplinary uh, practices, 
is that you trying to bridge that gap? Is that you trying to find new dimensions to communicating some kind of idea? Um, yeah, well, I, I, I like to think about um, language in the body, you know, not, not so much in the mind, huh. but in both places. And um, I like to really think that we are creatures of language, you know, that's, mm. that's the great thing that we share, um, you know, in, in consciousness. So um, since you wake up in the day, you are um, in, in some sort of way, you are experimenting language, you know, even if you're silent. So, um, yeah. so I really try to, to question, um, you know, semiotics and semantics and sort of this, uh, the, the meaning of meaning kind of, and mm -hmm. I think language is really, um, the vehicle for that. Um, so I don't know if bridging, but definitely diluting, you know, diluting mm. like one uh, one boundary with another. Um, so it, it's kind of utopic sometimes, um, but I really, really question and and feel that um, we can we can have different approaches towards language, and sometimes um, I kind of have this. Uh, way of explaining or metaphor about leaking, you know, like uh, mm. we're sort of leaking language. Um, you know, we are because because language is is in the in the boundaries and in the limits and in the relation between even non-human things. Mm. Um, but we are sort of embodying that and, and, and language is being like leaked, but it's also being coming towards you um, in a way. I don't know if this is too. Yeah, no, this is good because I was thinking about um, how when it's face to face communication with someone, um, the communication exists largely in like context or things that are implied um, inflection how we use our voices, our facial expressions, body language, all those kind of things. But when we are writing something, if we're trying to communicate something, if we're trying to create an experience, uh, the words often largely have to stand on their own. So it's interesting to hear you talk about bringing in different means of communication and how all that stands for you. So uh, Diego, when you are doing your work, do these themes come into play? And then also I wanna know like, since you're both doing the this magazine and working together from time to time on certain things, how this sort of, uh, I'm gonna say chemistry of communication, <laughs> how it kind of fits in. Right, um, I would say that uh, I think we arrive mostly at the same place when we work with language, both Lucia and I. Hmm. I do think we do arrive to that place through different different means and different routes, if you will. Mm -hmm. I think language is the great mediator. You know, we're constantly mediating language and mediating experience through language as well. So as a novelist, um, I take care first and foremost of experience. So I try to use language to experience the senses, the sensory experience of being in the world. 
So I think in the end, we do come to a certain place which is similar, but I do it more through an analytical place, you know, and, and come to that through knowing that language is an abstraction and I'm, I'm mediating experience through, through, through abstraction, you know. Since we're talking about the effectiveness of language to communicate, is there usually a specific message that both of you are trying to communicate or is it just about sort of the exploration of what language can do? Well, That's right, I come with the good questions. <laughs> Go ahead. It's funny, but I'm, I'm not that interested in being um, effective, you know. Mm. Um, for instance, I'm, I'm quite interested in, in disruption or mm. in, you know, I have an um, uh, aunt who had Down syndrome, uh, recently passed away, but she had a stuttering um, difficulty. And I loved how um, language got so refreshed, you know, in this, in this stutter. Huh. And uh, how, how there were other means of communication that naturally happened um, through this impossibility, you know, of, of, of uh, effective communication. So um, I really try to be open to, um, you know, breaks and crevices and, uh, and, and holes and, and, and things that are not, um, you know, not perfect or not um, optima, optimal. Um, so I'm, I'm more of, a, of an investigator or of a observer of, um, of, of where are these things located and what they can do and how they can, you know, teach us. Like they, the, the work can be, instead of me creating the work, the work happens in a way by relation and will teach me something, you know, mm. that I wasn't aware of. So, um, so yeah, I think um, my approach to, to language has to do with those sort of um, relationality aspects um, and with, you know, intervals and silences and uh, translations as well, mm -hmm. uh, written and spoken language. So, um, it's not it's not very much about the narrative no? okay and Diego is I think uh, is very much about telling the story of that right <laughs> yeah I, this question about precision fascinates me you know I am obsessed with precision in language mm -hmm. I often think that the most stunning images come through a mapping together images that are not precise. In other words, um, normally the, the most interesting images in writing come as metaphors of uniting two things that don't really go well together, you know, mm -hmm. and that can be understood as a rupture in language as well. So I think precision and rupture are not necessarily things that antagonize each other, you know. Mm -hmm. I have a, a, an obsession of looking for writers whose work I know is good, but I can't really figure out why. And uh -huh. I think it's often because of how jarring the images are together, you know? So mm -hmm. I, I, I do think precision in language can, 
can come from a place you don't really anticipate at times. Hmm. This is interesting. Yeah, like uh, it's sort of beautiful to hear um, Lucia, you know, you going for disruption and Diego, you going for precision, um, but being able to see the relationship between them both um, and that they're not necessarily opposed. I wonder, uh, as uh, you both know, at least at least two languages, is that correct? Correct. Okay. So do you find, because it seems like uh, the subtleties of uh, different languages might allow for a different degree of disruption or precision. Do you find that bringing in uh, different languages as you're writing something uh, becomes sort of a useful tool in either of these goals? Yeah, it definitely becomes um, like a very fertile sort of um, nourishing um, and very like malleable and flexible thing of you know what things are you know like mm -hmm. like there's like a double veil of of meaning and mm -hmm. uh you can sort of use um it's it's completely a different voice when um when i write poetry in english i really like it because i i'm more aware of the construction of the word because mm -hmm. actually i learned language I, I learned english like very well when I was older, you know, okay. in my in my 20s. Um, so I, I, I kind of, it, it's a different form of approaching language because you can sort of dissect more, um, you know, like the word rotate and the and the word rot and mm. how like rot is inside rotating, you know, and yeah. like what 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 that could mean or what that does. Huh. And when you're when you're born with your mother tongue, with your language, it's it's even more embodied. So you have less distance to sort of see the little the little things that are inside of words. Hmm. Um, and uh, so I, I I love using both and reading in both languages, writing in both languages. But um, you know, it's like having two two chairs and. Which chair do you want to sit in today? Yeah. Um, huh. Yeah, I think that that expands way more. Um, you know, it's it's yeah, it's like having more options to to create in your own mind. You know. Yeah, I love that. That's yeah, that's dope. Yeah, I would like to think of uh, languages in terms of knowing more than one language. It's a vantage point. You know, it's a way to to access the, the other language from a point of view that you wouldn't have. So um, to, to, to give an example, I think Spanish is a very nuanced language as opposed to the precision of English. Hmm. Spanish can be much more complex, and that is not to say that it's a better language or a worse language. Right. It's a different way of understanding words and learning to, you know, make them play together is a very interesting thing as well because you can find little crevices and nooks that hmm. tend to go unexplored at times. This is really interesting. It's, it's uh, sort of beautiful to, to hear, um, well, in some ways to hear what English looks like from the outside mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, the kind of subtleties that you're finding as you go back and forth between these two languages. 
I want to uh, go back a little. Um, like, so Diego, for you, how did this this pursuit of language begin? What got you into writing to begin with? So um, I had the privilege, with, I mean, it might be a privilege and a curse at the same time of growing up in a bilingual home, okay. like, straight down the middle. So mm. my mother spoke English to us because she was American and my dad is Mexican, so he spoke in Spanish most of the time. So I had a, like an early incline to read and write in both languages. Um, but I wouldn't say I was into language as I am today until maybe my late teens or something, just in school, developing a skill, you know, and it was my my parents also lived very remotely when I was young. So they in they passed on to me a very um, maybe unhealthy reading habit. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I took it from there. Uh, yeah. Reading literature was always in my life. So I think it was a very um, easy thing to, to 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 go into later in life. Well, so what did it what did it mean for you when you're reading like what chord did it strike you know like how did it why did you keep doing it yeah th this is gonna sound very purist but i think uh reading fiction mostly because it's what i mostly read and mostly mm -hmm. read today it gave me a tool to understand life as it was happening outside you know outside my body in my body so mm -hmm. it gave me a tool to understand feelings emotions abstractions and ideas as well so wow that's why it's, it's clung to me yeah hmm. okay and then lucia how about you how did how did you sort of uh start on your path to pursuing words my grandmother uh loved poetry she always said you know poetry saved me um she she had a, a, a she struggled so um she saw since I was young that I had that interest as well. So she really, really uh, pushed me and, you know, gave me books like, uh, you know, books that probably a, a, a seven, eight year old girl wouldn't, uh, wouldn't read. Hmm. But I also um, had, you know, like a little bit the fetish, fet yeah, fetish or, you know, the of the of the book since I was young because I I loved carrying my books and oh. uh, I loved also like the material aspect of the book and you know once I remember it fell into like a puddle and then you know it got all wet the book and then it got um, dried and like the 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 waves that happened you know the way it dried. Um, and the form, like the sculptural aspect of the book. And I think that sort of that drift um, of the object and the meaning of things really stayed with me. So I think that's, you know, this obsession of um, the, like the material aspect of words are, uh, is something that probably started since I was really, really young. Hmm. Um, and I, I always wrote in huge things, you know, I have a collection of notebooks since I was also really young, eight years old or something. So the notebook practice is really um, 
I'm, I'm kind of addicted, you know, to uh, if I don't have my notebook with me, I, I get really nervous. <laughs> um, so actually, when I met Diego mm -hmm. uh, is when I started reading novels. I didn't, huh. re I didn't really read novels before I read um, poetry. So, um, well, yeah, that... I mean, yeah, it's been like a long interdiscipline sort of um, search. Um, huh. I, I started then with art and with film. So I wanted to be a filmmaker that I wanted to do. And, and slowly I've been, you know, putting all the, the aspects together and, and understanding what I want to pursue. Well, listen, I got to say, uh, I really enjoyed talking to you both. It, it was a nourishing conversation. I felt creatively nourished. So I, I appreciate it. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much, Alan, for this time. You're a great host. A great host. <laughs> Thanks. We wrap up part one of our Best of How Art is Born season two with our interview with musician Wes Watkins. Alan and Wes discuss when Wes first picked up a trumpet, his complex relationship with music, they ponder the question of what is jazz, and being art. Welcome to How Art is Born, a podcast from the Museum of Contemporary Art Denver about the origins of artists and their creative and artistic practices. I'm your host, R. Alan Brooks, artist, writer, and professor. Today I'm joined by Denver-based musician and Cosmos Crusaders, Wes Watkins. Wes, say hello. Hi, I'm Wes. All right, man. So let me. Uh, when did you when did you first start playing trumpet? Like, how'd you get into this? Okay, I can never remember a time when I didn't want to play trumpet. Huh. Uh, the, the my earliest memories before I wasn't playing trumpet, I was asking my parents to play trumpet. Okay, love Stevie Wonder. Yeah, big part of it. Star and Family Stone and gospel music. Yeah, trumpets. It always hit me. I don't know why. Huh. I was singing. I was playing keys, and then in middle school, um, you know. At, out in Green Valley Ranch, I went to MLK, you know, I'm a okay. little kid, so okay. I went to MLK, and I was like, can I be in band? Right. They said they can give instruments to us, and my parents were like, all right. So I get in the band, and there was a dude by the name of Martin Martinez. Now, hmm. Martin used to play uh, uh, with um, Lou Soloff, Lou Soloff being the lead trumpet player from uh, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Okay. Lou Soloff was that trumpet player. Mm. And he played Tonight Show. Okay. Martin played with him on the Tonight Show, Let er, Letterman. Okay. In Vegas mm. at the time, I think. And uh, I think, I'm not sure, but I think that's, I, if I recall correctly, it's on a long time. On a prominent time. talk show. Yeah. <laughs> he played on a prominent talk show. Yeah. And uh, so I ended up, that was my middle school band director. Mm -hmm. And my sister... Sister right above me got into DSA as a drama major when, I, when she was in ninth grade, her freshman year. And everybody said, why don't you go to DSA? Yeah. I said, I want to leave Martin Martinez. He's a trump player. And I, I really like kicking it, even though like there was ruckus to be had. Mm -hmm. And then I went to DSA for high school. Okay. And then Martin was kind enough to like grace me with some lessons and my... My parents did what they could, but we couldn't do a whole lot, you right. know, like, and uh, kind of blessed me and taught me a bunch of shit. And hmm. That's trumpet. See, you know, okay, so there's a lot of musicians, uh, performers, period, who um, who perform through, like, a filter, right? Like, um, 
they don't exhaust them, their souls completely. The reason I bring this up is because when I see you, the times that I've seen you play or sing or really just anything musically, it feels like there is no filter, like you are just coming completely out of your soul. Do you feel like I got that right? Well, yeah, because I'm not, I don't mean to hurt nobody's feelings, but I'm not making art for anybody else. Hmm. Sometimes I hate playing music. Hmm. It's miserable. It makes me feel miserable. It just exaggerates all the things. I relive traumas, past traumas. Mm-hmm. But I, for whatever reason, I feel like it's the right thing to do, so I have to do it. Yeah. It doesn't mean I want to do it. Hmm. So then what is what is the act of uh, playing music, creating music in the moment? What does it do for you? Well, it depends on what's happened in the day, I suppose. Huh. You know? Um I would like to say it depends on the gig, but I suppose if I want to be candid and a critical thinker, the gig depends on what's happened with me. Hmm. If I'm going to be a front man, I have to admit, like, everything I do is going to be dependent upon how I'm feeling. Yeah. And not just that. Obviously, you know, being in any live band, there's collaboration. But, Mm -hmm. like, I'm lucky enough at the end of the day to have such amazing musicians who would not only intuitively know me right but will follow me i'm lucky in that regard you mm-hmm. know there's not a lot, whole lot of uh non-consensual sex of phone <laughs> on look i'm serious i'm so sick of non-consensual saxophone <laughs> um like you look at me and you play intentionally that's mm-hmm. one thing you look at me you just playing over everybody i don't give a fuck go yeah. home yeah, drunk, I've, Sally. I've definitely fired musicians for doing that. I haven't. Yeah? No, I believe in a world of reform. And they can reform in another band. I'm trying to, <laughs> 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 trying to get my gigs handled. Yeah. <laughs> experience and they're just about themselves. It throws everything off, kind of. Well, absolutely. Also, this brings up a question I had for you that I thought about. Okay. Kenny G is jazz. <laughs> Miles Davis is is jazz. Uh, Robert Glasper is jazz. I don't know that I definitively agree with all those statements, but that's what our world says. Mm-hmm. So my question that I have is what is jazz? That's a big question. I actually don't feel like I'm qualified to answer that. Well, I just mean to you, I, I feel the same way. Like, I don't know. I'm not qualified to answer that question. Well, I, I would say more, you more than me, right? Because like uh, I'm hiring jazz musicians to back me up. I'm much more of a hip hopper. But I think hip-hop is jazz. I mean, they're certainly close cousins. Well, I think about I think about origins of hip-hop, right? Yeah. I think about sample-based culture, right? Mm-hmm. I think about DJs playing records that are instrumentals and MCs coming up on the park in New York and rapping over that. Right. And then I think about uh, Charlie Parker mm-hmm. and ornithology or... Ella Fitzgerald and How High the Moon. Mm -hmm. And it's the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. Contrafact, you know, to rewrite the melody over a tune that already exists. Mm. And that is hip hop. And then I think about The Last Poets. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When the revolution comes. Right. And then I think about Gil Scott Heron. The revolution will not be televised. Right. It seems like the same thing to me. Hmm. Well, it feels like you answered the question way better than I could have. Well done. Well, I just think that oral history is jazz. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Yeah. Uh, specifically, black American oral history? Does that feel? 
Yeah, but I also think about Ifa from Yoruba of uh-huh. Nigeria, and yeah. I think about oral history. Okay. I think that I had a buddy mm-hmm. say to me years ago, Nick Hammerberg, I mean Nick J, Petals of Spade, he says, the human connection can water any seed. He writes his song, says, the human connection can water any seed. I was the only a black dude in Petals of Spade. But it was Nick J who said that to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think to connect on the human level makes it really interesting when I started thinking about it was safer, probably always, mm-hmm. to pass things down orally, to pass them to your community and your kids, your family in general, mm-hmm. orally, than to write it down. Even though we knew how to write it down. Mm-hmm. He said, maybe this is a wiser option. Hmm. Because if what if the wrong people get their hands on yeah. the right wisdom? Hmm. And I think that's jazz. Mm-hmm. And that's why collegiate jazz is a fucking joke. <laughs> uh, I'm really waiting for you to come out of your shell and tell me what you think about things. So stop, stop you know, being so... <laughs> 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 Nah, man, uh, you know, uh, like, the, it's interesting for me to watch the same process happen with hip-hop, right? Because there are things that are, like, um, spiritual about, like, how you freestyle your delivery and stuff like that. And then to have people break it down to, like, this is how you spit bars, you know, like, have college courses on it. On the one hand, Wait, I think— Wait, there's college courses about how to spit bars? Yeah. Yeah. Like, okay, continue on. We're just right. going to skip over thing. that. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> but I think on the one hand, like— Writing it down gives it a different place in history. It helps to sustain it, but it's like a diminished version of it, sort of. Now we can record it. Yeah. Jazz didn't always have the option. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. Blues didn't always have the option. Yeah. Ifa from Yoruba of Nigeria. What were those folk songs like when that started? Right. That Atlantean-ass religion. They didn't have the option. We didn't have the option. So you think, you're saying that sort of like a recording is better than um, making it like a course in a college or something like that? Much rather that people listen to what yeah. I was saying <laughs> than they read it off of a piece of paper and pretended like they listened. Hmm. That's interesting. Huh, okay, so you work in an art environment. Your life is playing music outside of that Um I don't know, man. Like, what's what's important? Wait a second. Hold on. I work in an art environment, and what? Uh, your life is music outside of that, right? Because so, because um, you have to work in the structure of a place uh, that is not the art that you create, but it is an art environment. You were talking about some of that frustration, because a lot of people I think that are going to be listening are going to be people who um, who have their passion that's their art, and then have like their day job that they don't care for it as much. Oh. Um, so I'm, the question I was getting to was like, how do you balance that, right? Because you're surrounded by art in your day job, but it's not necessarily like, um, it's not your art, it's not your expression. And then outside of that, you get to go fully into your expression. So what is that, I don't know, what's that like for you? I would like to say, uh-huh. you don't live in art environments, you are art. Hmm. I think genre was made to intellectualize what musicians intuitively do. Genre of any art form was uh-huh. made to intellectualize 
what art intuitively does. Mm -hmm. An artist was made to intellectualize the character that art holds. Mm -hmm. You are art. I don't exist in an art environment. Mm -hmm. I am art. And so, between music and them, uh-huh. I'm unapologetically myself either way. Hmm? I have no time to play games. I know the stories of Corbet and Jonas Berger and Leonore Carrington and Max Ernst, and I sit and I research. Mm-hmm. Every art I encounter, I sit and I research. Degas, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Degas. So what does that do for you when you're researching and you're encountering? Is it like, is it feeding your soul? Is it, like, yeah, what is, what's the effect? It's made me decide that I cannot remove the art from the artist. Hmm. Because I don't believe in artist. I think artist is the intellectualization hmm. of what those who are art are. And then there's product. Hmm. I think that I, um, unfortunately now, when I find out about the characters of some of these people, yeah, especially in an art museum or any museum, I cannot eliminate the things that that Degas did to women, especially. Mm-hmm. I cannot eliminate the fascism of a Dolly, which we don't even have any Dolly on display, you know. Mm. And in the same way, I think about activism. Because activism and artistry, I think, are very similar. I cannot eliminate the, um, y- you know, the racism of a of a Gandhi. Hmm. And so, working at the art museum has made me decide that I need to be better. Hmm. That's interesting. Because I, as an artist, look, I want to have a damn good story by the end. Hmm. But that does not mean that I want. Some grandiose thing. It just means I, I want a good story, you yeah. know? Like, and I want that story not to be tainted with years of mistakes. So, like, I'm in my 30s. I got to make it at least another 40 years so that I can have 40 years of hopefully less mistakes. Hmm. Okay, so you brought up uh, not being able to separate the art, the person, the creator from the art. Um, and you brought up activism. Are those things connected for you as a creator? Absolutely. I think about uh, Nina Simone, mm-hmm. who says, uh, well, the artist's job is to reflect the times. Yeah. It's part of why I think museums are silly, because it's a, humans negating that their nature, things last forever, conservation teams. Like, don't get me wrong, I love museums. Mm. I'm a museum junkie. But like, it doesn't make sense to have things last forever. Mm. But for me, it is that Nina Simone or that Robert Colescott, mm. you know, that Corbet. I have a quote. Would yeah. you like to hear a quote? You can't, I was, you can't I was doing some research yeah. uh, at the museum earlier uh-huh. because I, I've fallen in love with Colbet. Let's see. Uh, um, Gustav Corbet says, Okay. And our so very civilized society is necessary for me to live the life of a savage. I must be free of even governments. The people have my sympathies. I must address myself to them directly. Hmm. Okay. There is no separation from being an artist to art. Yeah. We are art 
activism art is meant to reflect the times and we have no choice you are art mm -hmm. you will always be an activist whether you want to be or not because your opinion matters hmm. to those who are not art so then what is your vision when you're creating art um, for how it affects people like what what do you want to happen when people encounter i'm never thinking about affecting people oh, that's interesting okay i make art because something is on my mind or something is going on with me it is that is the language music is the language you know mm -hmm. so then i just um i just write hmm. you know and whatever comes out is what's coming out yeah i don't care how people perceive it if they don't like it okay you don't like it i don't care somebody's probably gonna like it and if people don't like it i don't actually care i didn't mm -hmm. write it for anybody else i never write for anybody else I'm just writing. I'm not yeah. writing even for myself. I'm writing. and um, But also, you know, many, many artists have said it's not the artist's job to be the critic, hmm. even though I encourage everybody to be a critical thinker. Please <laughs> be a critical thinker. Okay, well, uh, thank you. Thank you for talking to us, man. It was really, really dope. Hey, yo, thank you for having me. Thank you for revisiting some of our highlights from the first half of season two of How Art is Born. If you love this podcast, share that joy with a friend. We really appreciate it, and we're sure your friends will too. We'll look back on episodes 6 through 10 a couple weeks from now. And How Art is Born Season 3 will be coming to a podcast platform near you this spring. <laughs>